would, join me this morning and find with me in your copy of God's Word, Luke chapter 1. The first chapter of Luke, as we consider just a portion of the story here of Luke chapter 1, together this morning in verse 26 through verse 38. Luke chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 26 through 38 together this morning. Uh, And if you would, as you're uh, still finding your way there, uh, I'd like to just again commit this time to the Lord in prayer. So let's pray with one another. Father in heaven, we ask, Lord, that you would help us in these moments um, to come before your word and to adore you for who you are, for what you have done, what you have promised to do. Lord, would you, you humble us under the weight of this profound story of, uh, of this message that comes to this one virgin uh, and, and this proclamation of Messiah's birth, Lord. Would you just remind us of, uh, again, anew today, the glory of this truth, that we would stand in awe of your word and the story of redemption, and that, Lord, you would speak mightily by your word before us and your spirit within us. God, we ask that you be honored and glorified, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable before you. And it's in your son's holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, my, my hope and prayer um, for us this morning as I'm uh, studying this week and, and leading up to this moment has been that as we come to the end of this year, and we consider where we have been in the Word of God together uh, over the past 12 months, uh, in particular in the preaching of the Word of God, that we would see more clearly uh, the beauty of the story of the Bible. We began this year in Genesis. Uh, we spent some time in First and Second Thessalonians. We were in Ruth just a few weeks ago. Here we find ourselves in the Gospel of Luke. And throughout this year, I have tried to purposefully and intentionally emphasize uh, this story of the Bible, what we might call the grand narrative of Scripture, what you have heard me say time and time again this year, the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This story has been unfolding and is unfolding from Genesis to Revelation throughout the pages of Scripture And this story, as we have seen this year as a church, centers around a child, a child who is to come, a child who is promised to Eve there in the garden, a child who is promised to Abraham and to Sarah, a child who comes by Ruth and Boaz, a child who comes from the line of David, Messiah, Emmanuel, God in flesh. Jesus himself, the one that we will read about his coming here in these verses. And we share in the expectation of the Old Testament again here in these few verses that are found in Luke chapter 1 that Messiah is coming. This is the story of the Bible. All of the signposts of Scripture are pointing to this one who would come from an Old Testament perspective, and the one who has come and is coming again, 
from a New Testament perspective. This remarkable plan of God, the plan of redemption, the story of redemption that is still unfolding in our day. And so as we consider this remarkable plan of God to save a people for himself from every tribe and nation, we see that it is this plan that God is is fulfilling through the pages of Scripture in our day is one that he brings about perfectly according to his will and his plan. The story of the Bible, the story of redemption is all of God. There are most certainly characters who play a crucial role in this story, but it is most certainly God's story. And again, we see it unfolding before us here in the pages of Scripture. If you would, look with me there in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. As we consider this plan of redemption that is unfolding, in these first few verses here, we see that God has made his plan of redemption known to us. The story of redemption, the story of the Bible is not hidden from us. It is here for us to read in words on a page. God is not a distant, far-off God. He has not left us to figure things out on our own. He has revealed himself to us. And this is the beauty of Christmas. This is what we celebrate in this season of Advent, that God has come near to us and has revealed himself to us through the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the hope of salvation made known to us right before our eyes in words on a page. There is a God in heaven who saves. And we can know him. And we can fellowship with him. And we can find peace with him. It's very fitting that the message here from the Lord... This word from the Lord that comes through the angel Gabriel, his messenger, to this virgin Mary. It's very fitting that it comes to a city in Galilee. Do you remember last week in Isaiah 9 what we said about Galilee? Galilee was the armpit of Israel. And Christ fulfills the prophecy there in Isaiah 9 by going first to Galilee to minister to them there. And here, where does this message of Messiah's coming go to? It goes to Galilee. To this city named Nazareth. You remember there in John chapter 1, Philip, uh, he uh, receives the the message to follow after Jesus. And and he goes to to Nathanael and, and he says to him, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And what is his response there? Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is the view of Galilee in this day. This city, this region represents the mess of Israel. And yet God does not come down to us in our perfection. He comes down to us and meets us in our mess. And we see this in the manger. 
God does not send his son to be born to a king and laid in a, in a golden bed in a palace. No, he sends him to this humble woman, this humble man, and he is born in a stable and laid in a manger. This is the humility of the incarnation. It's also very fitting that this message comes to the house of David in light of what we saw in Ruth chapter 4, that, that this line of Messiah, this, this promised line of the seed would go through the house of David. And Isaiah affirmed this last week in Isaiah chapter 9, that Messiah would sit on the throne of David. It's also very fitting that this message would come to a virgin. We contrast the message that comes here to, to Mary in the latter part here of chapter 1 to the message that came earlier to the old man, Zechariah, in the first part of Luke. This message comes to this young virgin, and we'll, we'll unpack the, the significance of that here in a moment. But notice what the initial message is from the angel. You see it there in verse 28. He says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Some of your translations say, Highly favored one. There's something important that we need to consider here about Mary. There is nothing fundamentally unique about Mary other than the fact that she is a virgin and God has chosen her for this task. When he calls her there highly favored, he is communicating something that is true of all who believe in Christ for salvation. She is simply a recipient of God's grace. And we see this in what he says there. The Lord is with you. Uh, these words that are used here, highly favored, are, are similar to the words that are used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. that says, uh, of the glorious grace of God that he has freely given to us. The favor in which Mary has here from the Lord is the same favor, the same grace that is freely given to all who believe in the Son, apart from any merit of their own. And the, the response of Mary initially there in verse 29 that she's troubled is sandwiched in between two things that the angel says in verse 29 and verse 30 that centers around this fact. She has found favor with God. She has received the grace of God. Notice her response there in verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be and then the angel says to her there in verse 30 do not be afraid her response is is that she's troubled she is afraid the word troubled there means confused or perplexed later in verse 34 as we'll see here in a moment she asks a question of uh, of clarification she doesn't understand what is what is being said to her here and as we see how mary responds to the message of the lord that comes to her from the angel we recognize something that this is the natural response of sinful men when the word of God, when God's truth is presented to us. When the truth of God comes to us in our sinful state, our natural response is that of offense, of confusion, of fear. It's very interesting uh, that we see this type of pattern throughout the Bible. When a message comes to a, a particular person in Scripture from a, a, a messenger from the Lord or from the Lord himself, usually the initial response of the person who receives the message is one of questioning, of confusion, of offense. This, this is kind of a pattern that we've seen throughout the Bible. You think of Abraham there in Genesis chapter 15. God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And what is Abraham's initial response to the Lord? He says, you have given me no offspring. 
This precedes his eventual response that we see there at the end there in, in, in chapter 15 of Genesis that he believes in the Lord and it's counted to him as righteousness. Another example of this, you think of Moses at the burning bush. The Lord says, Moses, go and, and let my people go. You will be the one who sets my people free. And what is Moses' initial response? He says to the Lord, but Lord, I don't speak well. Initially, Moses goes and obeys the Lord in that endeavor. But this is our initial natural response as fallen human beings when the truth of God comes to us. And this is still true today. The word of God brings a sense of offense to sinners. What, what can we do with this practically? Well, first and foremost, we, we need to rest in this, church. When God speaks, we can and we must trust him. His word is completely trustworthy because he is completely trustworthy. He speaks by his word, what we call the Bible, the story of redemption. This is the very word of God, dear friends. This book is not just inspirational. It's not just to be put along other New York Times bestsellers as things to inspire us this year. No, the word of God is not just inspirational, friends. It is inspired by God himself. This word was written by men who were taught and inspired by the Spirit of God. This word is not just profound. It is authoritative. It carries with it the very authority of the creator of the universe. This word is not just encouraging. It is life-giving. You go and read Psalm 119, and the writer there is convinced that the word and the law and the mandates of God are full of life. The word of God is, is, is not just helpful. This is not a book that we put on our nightstand to include alongside all the other self-help books that exist in our day. No, the word of God, dear friend, is sufficient. All that we need for life and godliness is found in the pages of this book. Friends, trust him by his word. But, but also the application here is that we would not stop sharing the truth of the gospel even when it is an offense to the lost and dying world around us. Just because someone is initially offended to the gospel does not mean that we stop sharing the hope of heaven with them. We continue to preach Christ to them. Hear this, the gospel is offensive to a lost and dying world, but it is also the power to save. And so as you think about in the coming weeks when you're around family members at Christmas time that you have shared the gospel with time and time again, and their hearts are hardened and they are offended by the message of the gospel, dear one, do not lose heart. Continue to preach the hope of heaven, even though it is a stumbling block to many. So we see here the plan of redemption is something that God has revealed to us and made known to us. But we also see that God is purposeful in his plan of redemption. None of this is by chance or happenstance. This is not a mistake. Look at verse 31. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
Although these three verses are not a direct quote of what we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 9, the heart of the message of Isaiah 9 is very much found here in these three verses. We, we think about last week in Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born. There is a, a child who is coming here in verse 31. It says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Isaiah 9 tells us that he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Here we see that he is the Most High God, that his name is great. Isaiah chapter 9 tells us that he will sit on the throne of David. Here in verse 32, he, uh, it says, And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. Isaiah 9 tells us that this throne will be established forever, that his kingdom will be established forever. Here in verse 33, it says, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. This one that the angel speaks of to Mary that she will bear in herself and, and bring into this world is the very one that Isaiah spoke of 700 years before. It is the one, he is the one who was promised there in the garden, who was promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. This is the Messiah, the one who was promised long ago, who will come to her and he will be called Jesus Look there at verse 31. There's another prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that is pretty much word for word what we see here in verse 31. Isaiah 7, 14, uh, 7, 14 says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Look what the angel says to her here in verse 31. Again, very much the same words. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. We have two names that are given here for the Messiah. First, Emmanuel, which you know means God with us. This name encapsulates what we celebrate at Christmas, the incarnation that God has come near. He has, he has made himself into our likeness. He is with us. The name here that is given, Jesus, means that the Lord is salvation, that the Lord saves. And if you go to Matthew's gospel account, there in Ma Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when he tells Joseph to name the son Jesus, he says, because he will save his people from their sins. These two names, Emmanuel and Jesus, sum up the gospel. That God came near to save sinners. We talked about this yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that it is just a sentence that sums up the gospel, and it's very much that. God came near to save sinners. And dear friends, this is no accident. This is the purposeful plan of God from before time began to redeem a people for himself through this one who would come. He mentions here the throne of David and the house of Jacob. And both the throne of David and the house of Jacob tell the same story. And the story is this. The people of God are broken. You look at the lineage that would fall after David and sit on his throne. It is full of men who loved the ways of the world and sought after the gods of the world. David himself, although he was a man after God's own heart, committed great sin. Jacob's house comes into existence through great sin. And all of the descendants of Jacob tell the same story, dysfunction. 
And we see over and over again in the Old Testament that the people of God are broken. And to some degree, this is the point of the Old Testament. When we are left to ourselves, we will fail miserably. God gives his people the law in the Old Testament, and we see over and over again that they cannot keep the law. And so the message of the Old Testament is that they need one. They need a better king, a better prophet, a better priest to come to be their advocate, to stand in their stead who would keep the law perfectly. And again, this is no mistake that Jesus would come in this way from this line, from these broken people. This is the purposeful plan of God. I want us to see just for a moment the, 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 this picture of how the Old Testament and the law points to our need for Salvation points to our need for Messiah. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You jump down to verse 19 and it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You jump over to chapter 7. In verse 7 of Romans, it says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, it, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law it serves as a mirror to show us our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And this is the, the anticipation of the Old Testament. The people of God are broken and they need a Savior. They need one to come and redeem them. And we share in that same anticipation in our day during this season of Advent. Again, that word Advent means coming. Christ has come and he's coming again. And so this, this purposeful plan of God that brought about redemption to a people who desperately need it by the incarnation, God coming near, that we could not do in and of ourselves, he has done. He has come near. He has intervened on our behalf. And so we now live in faith each day knowing that he has come according to the will of God and he's coming again according to the will of God. If this is not true, if Jesus the Messiah has not come and conquered sin and death and he's not coming again, all of this is for nothing. This is just foolishness that we're participating in this morning. We should simply eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There's no purpose. There's no hope in this world. But if this is true, and dear friends, it is, that Messiah has come and conquered sin and death, and he's coming again, this impacts everything that we say and do. We, we should be living as aliens in this world strangers in a foreign land, ambassadors for our king, 
faithfully serving him and representing him in this world until he comes again. We should be living holy lives set apart for his glory. There should be an expectation in us this day and every day of the joy and the hope and peace that we have in Christ and will be fulfilled in the end when he returns. And we should be sharing this with others as we wait for his return. Christ is coming again. Believe in him and be saved. Finally, though, as we consider the plan of redemption, we see here that it is God alone who fulfills this plan of redemption. We come to the end of our text this morning. There in verse 34, it says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. These last verses that we just read together have this overwhelming message. This is not of man. It is of God. And we have seen this throughout the past years. We've walked through the pages of Scripture together each Sunday morning, a baby coming in a miraculous way. Now, just a side note here in regard to this, we believe that all of life comes from God. We do not bring children into this world. Anytime life is conceived inside the mother's womb, it is a miraculous gift of God alone. He alone gives life. But as we consider this lineage of the seed that's promised in the garden, we see this extraordinarily miraculous event happening over and over again that shows us this is not of man, this is of God. Redemption is not of man, it is all of God. Consider Sarah in her barrenness. And the links that her and Abraham go to to bring about a child. And in her old age, God gives her a son in Isaac, showing that it is not of man. Consider Ruth and the journey that she went on through those four chapters. And then God brings her the son Obed, showing that it is not of man. Even Elizabeth herself is mentioned here, who earlier on in chapter 1 is in her old age. In her barrenness is, has a son that has come to her in her old age, who will be the forerunner of Christ. And if you're not convinced that this is all of God and not of man, here we have this one Mary, who is a virgin. Twice the writer uses the word virgin there in verse 27. My translation uses the English word virgin there in, uh, the English word for virgin there in verse 34, when it says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Actually, what what Mary says there in the original language is, since I have not yet been with a man. This this is emphasized by the writer. It is is recognized by Mary herself. She, She essentially needs clarification from the angel. Hold on a second, buddy. There is one glaring problem in this whole plan of yours. I am a virgin. And the angel's response is emphatically this. It will not be of man. It will be of God. 
My translation says that the Most High will overshadow you. Or earlier there in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This word overshadow or overcome, some of your translations might say, is the same word that is used in the book of Hebrews to speak of the presence of God coming on the tabernacle in the Old Testament. So, you know, Old Testament worship uh, in the wilderness, they, they build this temporary tent that travels with them where they worship and sacrifice before the Lord. And when it's set up and the Lord's presence is there, what happens? The smoke overshadows, is the word, the temple there. Interestingly, this word is also used there at the transfiguration. And in all three of the synoptic gospels, when Jesus goes to the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and, 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 and the, the, the cloud overshadows them, and Moses and Elijah appear, and they see Jesus in all of his glory. The, the presence of God was fully there in their midst. And out of the cloud, what do we hear the Lord say? This is my son. Which is so fitting because here we see that same truth communicated. This is God in flesh, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. And so the way in which Mary conceives this Son is by the miraculous power of God. This is not Greek mythology that we're reading about here. This is not some carnal, man-made God who comes down to earth to have sexual relations with a woman. There are no natural means taking place in this. This is completely supernatural. Mary conceives not by men, but by God alone. And that's why it says there, he is holy. He is without sin. He is the Son of God. Again, emphasizing that this is not of man. This is all of God. I love how Matthew emphasizes this same truth in, in his gospel. Matthew chapter 1. In, in, in Matthew's attempt to emphasize just how much this birth is not of Jesus, he, he almost, uh, to a degree, belittles Joseph's part in all of this. Listen to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Matthew said this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, not of Joseph. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, all of God. Verse 19, and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame resolved to divorce her quietly but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. It's not of you, Joseph. He goes on to say, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What we, we just quoted earlier. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The Isaiah 7 passage that we read earlier. And then in verse 24, it says, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, not of Joseph. This is all of God to redeem a people for himself. And so that's why the, the angel says there in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. When the angel says that, he's not just saying what God can do. Rather, he is saying what God is resolved to do. 
In other words, God will do what he says, no matter how incomprehensible it might be to our human minds. You talk about offense to the gospel. There are so many people in our day that say there's no way naturally for a woman to conceive who is a virgin. But we worship the creator of heaven and earth, dear friends. This is child's play before a holy and sovereign God. It is all of him. And so this, this should sound very, very familiar to us. When the angel says there nothing will be impossible with God, I, again, just am humbled to just stand before the word of God and see how it is, has led us and discipled us and, and, and trained us so well this, this year. Back in Genesis 18, where we were earlier in the year, the Lord comes to Abraham, and, and the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And then in verse 14, do you remember what the, what, what the Lord said to Abraham? He said this, is anything too hard for the Lord? And what did we say when we looked at Genesis 18 earlier in the year? The answer to the question is, nothing is impossible with God. He will redeem a people for himself. And this is the message that the angel brings. And, and just as Abraham there in Genesis 15, his fear turned to faith. When initially he said, how, Lord, how can this be? I do not have a son. But then he believed in the Lord. So too we, do we see that in Mary. In verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That word there for servant in the Greek is the word doulos, which means slave. Mary's confession is this, I am a slave of Yahweh. He alone is my master. And I will live all of my days in accordance to his word. This is her confession. For those of us who are in faith in Christ this morning, this is our confession. When we confess that God alone saves, he becomes our master. When we baptize people here at Calvary Hills, we, we ask them, what is your confession? And their response is simply this, Jesus is Lord. Meaning this, that Jesus is my master, and from this point forward, I will commit myself and live to him and him alone. Unbelief in response to the gospel and, and the truth of God's word makes us rebels and deserters. But by faith and faith alone, faith makes us obedient servants of God. I love what one theologian said of Mary here in her confession in verse 38 that this theologian said this. He said of Mary, Mary is convinced of the power of God. Follows cheerfully where he calls. Trust also to his promise and not only expects but eagerly desires its accomplishment. Let me read that again. Mary is convinced of the power of God. Follows cheerfully where he calls, trusts also to his promise, and not only expects, but eagerly desires its accomplishment. Dear friend, are you convinced of the power of God this morning? 
that is on display for us in the story of redemption. That he has come near to us in the form of a man and lived a sinless life and died on the cross and rose from the grave, conquering sin and death once and for all, as we read earlier in Hebrews. By the blood of the cross, do you know this to be true? Are you convinced of the power of God that is on display before us this morning in this baby in a manger? who became a man and died in our place. Is there a resolve in you this morning that this is the story of redemption? Will you, like Mary, follow cheerfully wherever he calls you? Will you follow the Lord cheerfully into the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death, into seasons of hardship, into seasons of suffering? Will you, like Mary, follow cheerfully your Lord and Master in obedience to him and his word? Maybe, maybe this morning the Lord is calling some of you to missions. Will you follow the Lord cheerfully to the ends of the earth, giving of yourself completely so that some may hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Will you, like Mary, trust in the promises of God that he is faithful That he will do all that he says he will do. That he will redeem a people for himself. And that he will never leave you or forsake you. But finally, do you, like Mary, eagerly await his return? Do you live, not just this day, but every day of your life with the anticipation of this truth? Christ has come and he's coming again. Church, the king has Come, and he's coming again. May we live with this type of anticipation all of our days. Let's pray.